0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Monday, April 10th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. America doesn't have too coherent a policy on Syria, but one thing seems clear. Here's Secretary of State Rex Tillerson on ABC's This Week.
0: This strike, I think the president was very clear in his message to the American people that this strike was related solely to the most recent horrific use of chemical weapons against mi- women, children, and as the president said, even small babies.
1: It was clear. It couldn't be clearer. Don't kill children because that's a war crime. Counterpoint. Here's Senator John McCain on CBS's Face the Nation.
0: John, me, uh, using chemical weapons is a war crime, but starving thousands of people in prisons is also dro- a barrel bombs, which indiscriminately kill innocent civilians precision strikes or done by Russians on hospitals in Aleppo are
1: war crimes as well. And you know what? John McCain is absolutely right. I know the history of chemical weapons. I understand why they're banned and that they should be banned. But when you trot out the he killed babies rationale, you're not actually arguing your case. The U.S. does not intervene when a brutal regime kills children. It simply does not over the almost 4 years of the war in Syria there hasn't been a day that's gone by when Assad's forces haven't killed a child the number of children be it via a bomb a bullet or starvation and denial of medical care occasioned by siege tactics many of these methods are actually more efficient weapons than chemical weapons by the way it's just crazy to continually justify a strike against a type of weapon by claiming it is a strike in support of a type of person. Let me make an analogy to America. After all those six- and seven-year-olds were killed in Newtown, there was an uproar, but there was no federal action. But what if a couple years later, there was another killing of just as many children, but this time the murderer used a knife? And there were horrific images of the event. And the president, and maybe it was a president who in the past urged that no action be taken, but maybe the president said, I just I just can't take it. I can't take looking at the effects of this knife attack. Knife attacks are so brutal. They're so disturbing. Stabbing is just so horrific. It goes against our rules as a society, as a civilized people. Something must be done because of this knife attack. Yeah, what about the uh, all the all the other gun attacks? No, no, no. But this was a knife attack on children. It's a pretty close analogy to the action versus inaction debate in Syria. It depends on the nature of the weapon, not the scope of the victimization or the costs of intervention. On the show today, I spiel about Bill O'Reilly and another gangly alpha male with his chin jutted out in defiance. He's the sort of Bill O'Reilly of the bath party, you might say. But first, on the show, I debut a segment called Mike Debates Slate. I read an article in Slate. I say to myself, wow, my colleague is provocative, learned, well-written, but wrong, just plain wrong. Let's bring him in and hash it out. May the best debater win, which, you know, I hope is me. On March 2nd, Charles Murray, author, political scientist, uh, most notably or infamously for the book The Bell Curve, which was published 23 years ago. He was to speak at Middlebury College, but protesters there essentially shut him down, going so far as to pull fire alarms not letting him expound upon what they called, I think, fairly his racist viewpoints. Now, this occasioned an article in Slate by Osita Wanevu called The Kids Are Right. There's nothing outrageous about stamping out bigoted speech. I would agree with that subheading, except for maybe the verb stamping out. I would say there's nothing wrong with challenging, protesting, objecting to, counteracting, It's the stamping out that got my attention. But like many things in Slate, I was interested to read it. I did. It did not convince me. That doesn't mean it was a bad argument. In fact, it gave me an idea. An idea for something that could become an ongoing segment called Mike Debate Slate, where I invite on actual Slate writers who write something I disagree with, and we debate about it. Osita Wanevo, thank you for initiating this segment with me. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Why is stamping out the right verb or set of words for that headline? Uh, well, it's first of all, not my set of words. Um, I, I don't know that
0: I would have, if I had chosen uh, the subheading myself, use, use the word stamping out. But I mean, I think it's it's defensible. You know, the student, had they, you know, not actually gone through and, and become, you know, a mob that like, pull, I think, pulled a professor's hair, shrouded Murray's mm-hmm. car. I think those parts of what happened were objectionable. But I do think it's okay for students to try to shout at Murray, boo him, be disruptive. And if that ends up being that he can't speak on that particular occasion, I think that that's fine and all right, and and not a cause for the kind of apocalyptic concern that has been espoused by a lot of the critics of not just what happened at Millaberry, but of student activism over the past couple of years.
1: Right. Well, maybe the concern is apocalyptic and over the top. And certainly there are, you know, you picked and uh, pointed to a number of op-eds that were unconvincing as far as either how terrible this action was how end of the world it was um there is definitely a chorus of people who can be relied upon at the drop of a hat to decry any sort of protests on campus and yet again i still think we disagree let's just put aside hair pulling and violence and things like that if there was just a way to silence someone you don't agree with Mm -hmm. i think it's wrong to do that on campus you're saying it's okay and from reading your article an essential point is we're here with Trump and a reason that a phenomenon like Trump has risen is that bad ideas are allowed to percolate. And one of the things we should do is to squelch the uh, dissemination of bad ideas, of uh, racist ideas, of harmful ideas. And Charles Murray propagates such ideas.
0: Right. That's one of the points that I make in the essay. One of the other things that I did in, in mentioning Trump, I mean, that part of that was to challenge the kinds of characterizations of discourse um, that come up whenever people criticize students. I mean, the idea pushed by people like Jonathan Chade is that, well, you know, once you have an environment where people are able to look at the facts on both sides, look at the arguments on both sides, rational people will use their best judgment and, and sort of allocate the win to whoever puts forward the best arguments. I think that Trump and his election kind of challenges that Trump was really engaging on a level that was not factual throughout the election, engaging on a level that was was not rational.
1: Yes, but that seems to me a better argument against having something called discourse or speeches or an attempt at rational thought Mm -hmm. than having Charles Murray uh, be the beneficiary of an idea that, you know, his bad ideas will lose out because things are fair. I don't think the argument for allowing Murray to speak is that, consequently, naturally, in the just order of things, human beings will see the light of day. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't believe that consequently the bad ideas will die. I see elections, yet I still think it's better to counter bad speech with good speech than no speech.
0: The question is whether or not there's something ethically wrong with pushing your own speech at the expense of merit. That's where the, the question lies. I mean, I think that more speech is being given when you know, these students yell out or, you know, give their reasons why they want to cancel certain speakers. It's not that they're not presenting ideas to oppose Murray. They are. The question – what upsets people is that Murray himself, his speech is sort of being pulled back or some people would say Silenced. censored. I mean, Silenced. He wasn't right. He not able to that's, that's the question. Yeah. People still are aware of Murray's argument. Like people know – hmm. What he wrote in the bell curve. This is a book that was written 20 years ago. There was a lot of debate. And, you know, certainly in the wake of this event, Murray has expressed himself and said, you know, here's why my views are defensible.
1: Oh, you're saying it's not really silencing Murray because his ideas have probably more disseminated after an incident like this than without. Murray's speech has not been infringed if these uh, protesters say not on my campus.
0: Right. I mean, you can't really say, and this is something that p- people who criticize students do. They will say at the same time, look, you're silencing people like Murray, you're silencing people by Milo Yiannopoulos, by mm-hmm. not giving them a right to speak on campus. But they'll also turn around and say, well, now that you've protested this guy, his idea is going to be more popular than ever. People are going to uh, feel sorry for them. They're going to express sympathy and, you know, his views become more popular. Like those, both of those things can't really be true. Like you can't both silence somebody and then in the same stroke, like massively yeah. advance their ideas in a counterproductive way.
1: That's like true, should... But in, in reading your article, I mm-hmm. said to myself, all right, do I think there's any speech that shouldn't be countenanced on campus? Of course I do. Like flat out Holocaust denial or like some version of Climate change denialism right. would be fine if it's like a real scientist who's pointing out ideas that aren't just based on lies. But then there are wackadoo jobs that maybe a campus group would invite, not just because we disagree with them, but there's absolutely no science to what they're saying. So let's get down to that. Is the is the the gist of the Murray argument so to you? And this was a 23 year old book, and the purpose of his speech on campus was to talk about, I mean, the title was, Are Elites to Blame for the Rise of Donald Trump? It wasn't even talking right. about race and IQ. Is the right. fact that 23 years ago, he had a couple chapters in his book, and he owns these ideas that there is a genetic component to IQ that's so beyond the pale that this justifies the silencing?
0: I don't think it's crazy for somebody to say, well, this person is not going to speak on this topic, but this guy is clearly said some reprehensible things, and we don't think you should be here, even though he wasn't going to, you know, address anything close to that. I, I do want to ask you about something you said just a minute ago, that for certain kinds of speech, there are certain things that you would consider unacceptable on campus, like Holocaust denial, climate change mm-hmm. denial. Some, some versions is, of
1: climate change denial.
0: Right, right, some yep. versions of that. But my question is, you know, why, why those things? I mean, I think that you said earlier that, you know, there is an ideal to be upheld where you're sort of afraid that, if there are certain categories of ideas that are stamped out, you don't necessarily need to believe that people will always make the right choices to understand the risks of doing something like that, of restricting certain kinds of speech. So doesn't that equally apply to, you know, if not Murray, Holocaust denial, climate change denial? Like why, why doesn't that argument also hold true for those things that you think would be okay to – Banned from campus.
1: Well, I would wonder if someone were to uh, invite a flat-out Holocaust denier uh, to campus, like what their motivations would be. If there was Mm -hmm. actually a groundswell of support, I can't um, even imagine it, but who knows? The world is trending Nazi, right? If there was Mm -hmm. a groundswell of support and there was some guy who wanted to give a speech on this and a number of students wanted to listen like I'd want there to be a venue for that I do wonder with Charles Murray who's always been controversial has been controversial for 20 something years he is a uh, some version of a conservative intellectual and right. even if he's so discredited by these chapters that he wrote 22 years ago and he doesn't disown he owns them he says things like mm-hmm. I think it's most likely true that there's a genetic component." To me, I think about that, I read about that, and then I came to a decision that I think his. I mean, there's whole books of essays rebutting that, but I don't feel worse for having engaged in the thought, you know? And since a lot of people do engage in the thought, I think it was more of a type where this is a thought that's out there in a somewhat significant way, and rebutting the thought gets us somewhere. I mean, I just think of myself. Like, I, I didn't know what to think, perhaps, when this book came out when I was 20 years old. But I read about mm-hmm. it. and I'm like, oh, wow, Murray's wrong. And the people who adhere to that, that says something about them. There must be some other people in the audience who could have gone through that process like I did. Uh,
0: certainly, maybe. I mean, I think I, I don't think we should feel I'm going to use the phrase that I used earlier, like apocalyptic concern. Like, I don't think that we should feel that, you know, because Murray was shouted down at miller now everybody in that audience who might have thought twice about the bell curve, now they'll never have occasion to, to rethink those arguments or, or interrogate those arguments or explore No, but I think, that, I think that's views. arguing
1: against kind of a straw man of an extreme reaction. I mean, my principle... Well, the reaction
0: was pretty extreme.
1: When I wrote this article, people
0: were... And not just, you know, random commenters. I mean, there are writers from other publications saying, well, you know, this is liberal fascism. Like, these kinds of people, if they get into power, are going to put people in camps. You know they're gonna impose all Well, kinds maybe of, the maybe the you know, straw
1: man. Maybe the straw man's now like twenty five percent of the population. I don't know that that would seem to be extreme, but at a certain point, even when it's not something that the university decides to go out and says this will be part of the curriculum, when a curriculum, when an idea is thrust upon them, you can react in a few ways. We both mm-hmm. agree that actual violence is a bad way. We probably both agree that there is a category of people who should not be invited. Maybe it's just that your definition of what the category of person is, is bigger, or maybe it's just if you're saying that, you know, you allow this right to conservatives, maybe your definition of the category of person is just defined by if a significant number of students on the campus find that person objectionable. And that's where we differ because I think that there's more of an ideal to engage in it in a way other than silence. Yeah, I mean, I'm not
0: really establishing a category. I mean, what I'm doing in this essay is, I think, defending a tactic. Like, there are people who
1: everybody thinks should not really be allowed to speak, whether they acknowledge mm-hmm. that or not. Like, this this sort of, like. If, if, the, if Richard Spencer, neo-Nazi, got invited, and the same things that happened at Mil- Middlebury, which Charles Murray, happened to Richard Spencer, I, yeah. I doubt very few people would decry that.
0: Sure, sure. So, I mean, what I'm doing in the essay is, number one, establishing that this category exists, even though we sort of pretend it doesn't whenever things like this happen. And two, I think defending the right of students of any persuasion to say that a certain speaker, a certain idea should be put
1: into that category. Yeah, that's fine. Then have that argument as an argument. Argue that point and get other people to agree to that point as opposed to have that argument as a fire alarm.
0: Well, you know, I mean, I think people made that argument in the first place before Murray was even invited. But, I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, okay if the person ends up speaking and you think it's reprehensible or, or you know, if you think he's a really, you know, terrible person. I think it, it's fine for you to protest in that way, provided that nobody gets hurt. Like, I don't see – I don't see the ethical – question here. I mean, I think we've, we have sort of like a normative question. We have a question about logistics. Like if everybody, one of the things that I think is a really good argument against my point of view is, well, you know, if you have this environment where conservative students and liberal students and far right left students, far right students, you know, shut people down who they disagree with then that gets really messy, doesn't it? Like, yeah. you know, don't people become apprehensive about speaking and, and doesn't that create a, a very messy environment? And I think that's, that's certainly possible, but that's that's not an ethical question. That's a logistical question. I'm trying to get down to why is it morally wrong, as people seem to think it is, for people
1: to speak out or protest in this specific way. Because I don't think they were protesting. I think that they their protests, their words, their concerns translated to actions. And if I'm mm-hmm. pulling a fire alarm... Fire alarms are very democratic things. They have low barriers for entry. You just have to reach <laughs> one. So it's kind yeah. of giving the veto power to one person for whatever the thousands might either benefit or... I don't think I'd benefit from a Charles Murray speech, but I'd mm-hmm. rather have him speak than silenced.
0: What I would try to want to get to is a place where you can criticize somebody for exercising the veto power if they do it for a dumb reason. Like if, if one person mm-hmm. literally pulls a fire alignment, like a very reasonable, like if, if Barack Obama came and somebody pulled a fire, alarm, like one dude pulled a fire alignment mm-hmm. and then, you know, they prevented him from speaking. Like you can criticize that guy for doing that. You can have an argument about why that was dumb, but I don't think it's the end of the world that that happened. Like, I don't think it that we should wholesale reject this tactic It's not getting to the morality of of why it is a grave wrong for somebody to do that. You know? yeah I think um, I think
1: maybe what it is is uh we're arguing not we you and I but the argument the the fulcrum of the argument is to uh, people who more or less agree with me would say well it's about open minds by not having him there you're showing you have a closed mind whereas right. uh, maybe the protest would say not at all I had a very open mind when I was considering the evidence and then I engaged in critical thinking another ideal of the university and as a consequence of my critical thinking I've determined that this guy is definitely not the kind of guy who should speak on my campus.
0: Right. Well, I mean, getting into this open mind idea, I mean, again, if they had picketed outside um, and not bothered anybody and said, well, Charles Murray's a racist, like, are those people open-minded? You get to a point where you protest an event by becoming closed-minded like that you're right. not opening yourself to inter- to when conclusion. you protest anything yes chance right exactly not,
1: chance are uh not hey hey ho ho tell me more let's I think about this like yeah, <laughs> yeah. no yeah <laughs> two four six eight please help me contemplate i have never heard that in a protest
0: right so i don't think the open-mindedness critique is is the one to to level here i mean i think that there are other reasons why People have opposed this that are that are more compelling.
1: Well, maybe it's just that the protesters prevented other people from coming to a conclusion. That's
0: that's, that's the key question. The, the ultimate thing is drilling on, down into you know, the ethics of why that is wrong rather than
1: you know, catastrophizing the situation. Well, I hope this was a fruitful debate. It was uh, perhaps the initial in a series called Mike Debate Slate. Osita Wanevu, who wrote The Kids Are Right. He's written like 400 other stories since then. He's a productive guy for Slate. Thank you for your time and uh, temperament, Osita. Thank you very much for having me. And now the spiel. Bill O'Reilly, son of Levittown, by his own proclamation, Westbury, in actuality, registry of no political party, Republican, in truth, is author of the current New York Times number one bestseller, Old School. It's about how the man lives by a code of ethics. He is, in truth, a lecher. Or to be extremely fair, he has somehow serially caused multiple women to be paid millions of dollars, not because he harassed them. But because he was afraid of getting in an argument about it, Bill O'Reilly was. You didn't listen to it. No, I listened cool. to every word you said, no, and I have no, the transcript no. right I here. I said it wasn't a good investment. Yeah, I and said you said it going a... forward we're going to be swell for a lot. No, from I August 07th seventh to August 08th. eighth. Don't, don't look. Stop the BS here. Stop uh, the crap. Uh, from uh, August o you know seventh to August 08th, you know, eighth. Under your tutelage, this this industry declined ninety percent. But, you know, O'Reilly and his path has been reminding me of another name in the news. Names in the news. Name in the news. Bill O'Reilly is, when you think about it, a lot like, and I think you know what I'm going to say, Bashar al-Assad. It's not just the barrel bombs of insight that O'Reilly launches or the fact that O'Reilly is the kind of guy who would bring a loofah to a bath party. Now, I know what you're saying. If you're to compare O'Reilly to any Shia-allied strongman it would more logically be an Iranian Ayatollah. In giving up centrifuges, Iran promised to turn their domain into a no-spin zone. And, further parallel, the Iranian no-spin zone, just like O'Reilly's no-spin zone, total bullshit. But hear me out on the Assad-O'Reilly comparison. They've both been in office for over 15 years. They're both between 6'2 and 6'4. When they started out, we in the West didn't really realize how nefarious they were. They have good academic credentials. O'Reilly studied at the Kennedy School of Government in Harvard. He liked Bobby Kennedy, he said. Assad earned his ophthalmology degree in London. But soon they began to show their true stripes. O'Reilly got caught in lies. He blew some gaskets. He walked out on Terry Gross. Assad arranged the assassination of Lebanon President Rafiq Hariri. I'm not engaging in moral equivalence here. I'm just saying that each man earned his deserved reputation as, shall we say, a bit of a stinker. There is a continuum for what that means, but both are on it. So both solidify their reputations. But then what happens is that new threats arise. Uh, There's Bin Laden, Saddam, al-Zarqawi, al-Baghdadi, the Muslim Brotherhood. Or... There's Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, the Fox and Friends. That's the other hand. And we become habituated to the odiousness of the guy who was there all along. They become almost normalized, perhaps even embraced. Syria escapes mention in the Axis of Evil. Skirts sanction and condemnation. Even talks nice to Charlie Rose in 2010. After President Obama came to power, there's some improvement, at least in the atmosphere. I wouldn't say there, there are a lot of concrete things happening. Uh, it's moving forward uh, slowly. But the main interest of this administration now and the visit of uh, Senator Kerry is about how can we relaunch uh, the peace uh, process. On the domestic front, Bill O'Reilly also does respectful interviews with American journalists. David Letterman has him on many, many times. Now, we go through this every time you're here. How many of these best selling books have you written? uh we've had 10 number one bestsellers 10 number one bestsellers yeah. and has thank you stephen colbert essentially bases his entire character and career on the guy papa bear john stewart debates o'reilly in a pay-per-view event the guy even crawls into o'reilly's lap for a laugh and on the daily show he claims to have found common cause with bill o'reilly You are like Pope Francis that has taken the Catholic Church into an era of acceptance and humility. You, you, Bill O'Reilly, can lead the flock of the fox fearful to a better place. I believe in you. And there is yet another instance of the overlap between Bashar al-Assad and Bill O'Reilly. Let us hear Assad justifying his own existence. If you want to start genuinely as the United States... To do so, it must be through the Syrian government. We are here, we
0: are the Syrians, we 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 own this country as Syrians. No nobody else, nobody would understand
1: it like us. So you cannot defeat the terrorism without cooperation with the people and the government of any country. In other words, if you want to beat ISIS, you can't say that Assad needs to be overthrown. But wait a minute. O'Reilly clearly was calling for the overthrow of Assad. He was saying Obama was weak and Assad had to go. Didn't he say that? You need to admit you were wrong about saying that we needed to overthrow Assad. And, and I didn't say anything ISIS. about Assad. I had no analysis my... on never Assad never at all. You said anything about Assad. No. I find that very hard to believe. Well, then you have to go uh, well, back I know and Monica check. Has. I didn't care about I mean, Assad one way or the has. other. This, this the... Oh, so there you have it to listen to Bill O'Reilly, he's just like Assad. Both guys are absolutely fine with Assad being in power. Actually, in truth, on this issue, there might not be much overlap. Assad honestly does hold that belief. But if you do check the tapes, it turns out on this one, like on so many others, O'Reilly is simply lying. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Chris Berube, who was asked to tone it down by his last employer when he tried to pilot a podcast called I Disagree with the CBC. Mary Wilson, Gist producer, also ran afoul of brass when she tried a similar tack in her last job. You say yes, I say no. What makes you so smart, Pennsylvania Public Radio? Steve Lichtie, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, had a brief career calling into account a popular children's nature magazine. Perhaps you read I Contradict Ranger Rick. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. His zine was an angry answer to the periodical Psychology Today. It was Psychology Gainsaid. The gist we had a magazine that was a rebuttal to another magazine. No, no, bruh the magazine. It was a big hit. Dislike attracts likes, it turns out. Oomperoo deprooduproo, and thanks for listening.